Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hi, it's Robin Openshaw, and welcome back to The Vibe Show. In the next few weeks, I am interviewing two very well-known psychologists and psychiatrists, and we are talking about mental health. We are talking about high vibration ways of dealing with depression and anxiety. And today we're talking about sleep disorders and the ways that we can get better sleep. My friend, Dr. Michael Bruce is a PhD, a clinical psychologist, and he runs a sleep lab. I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty fascinated by sleep labs and what we learn in there because so often what we learn about what we think our sleep is like and what it actually is like um, comes out of sleep lab uh, experiments. So Dr. Bruce has recently released his book, The Power of When, and it was number one on Amazon in his category, and he teaches us some biohacks about how there's a perfect time to do everything based on your own biological chronotype. He's going to talk about how there are four or five different chronotypes, and he corresponds them to animals, to take a look at what kind of sleep your body needs. How much does it need? When should you be sleeping? Why might you be having some slight conflict with your intimate partner uh, or others in your life or people that you work with based on the way that your body needs to sleep? So he's going to talk to us a little bit about when the exact perfect time is to go for a run or to have sex or to eat a cheeseburger, or to ask your boss for a raise. So these are the kinds of issues that he gets into. I'm very excited about this interview. Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Bruce. Hey, thanks for having me, Dr. Robin Openshaw. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about um, what got you into, you know, you went from the regular PhD in psychology or whatever your path is. How'd you get so interested in sleep and what's, what's sort of your unique take on yeah. how to help people with sleep. Well, it's interesting. It, it wasn't my first choice. Um, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, going through getting a PhD in clinical psychology, um, I had a lot of options during my residency for rotations. And um, it was kind of funny because one of the rotations that was really difficult for them to fill was the sleep rotation, which didn't make any sense to me. Um, I guess it was, it's just very biologically based. And um, none of my, um, my colleagues were interested in it. And so I said to myself, you know what? This sounds like it could be cool. I mean, I think I'm a good sleeper. Sleep is an interesting topic in general. Everybody sleeps. So why don't we check it out? And um, I ended up um, going into the residency. By the third day, I absolutely fell in love with clinical sleep medicine. And I knew this is where I wanted my career to be. You know, Robin, I, I know you know this, but many people out there who are listening might not know this is when you're working with patients, especially when they've got you know, psychological issues, the big, the big problem is, is that nothing happens quickly. Um, it takes long periods of time, months, years sometimes to see treatment gains. And as a sleep specialist, I literally change people's lives overnight. It's amazing. I feel really fortunate to be in the field um, and be able to have those opportunities because generally speaking, in my field, general, you know, in psychology, not many of us get a chance to, to do that. 
Uh, and, and I've kept in it. I mean, my very first job was as the director of a sleep laboratory. And so literally the 19 years that I've been in practice, I have only done sleep medicine. So as early as my residency is when I, I kind of figured that part out. And I got to tell you something, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's new research that comes out literally every single month that's a game changer um, for people and things that people would never imagine. Plus, being a sleep specialist, it also requires me to know a lot of other things. Um, you know, people ask me questions about sleep and the microbiome. They ask me questions about sleep and nutrition, sleep and weight loss. What's the best mattress? How do I pick a pillow? Uh, is it okay to, you know, smoke cannabis before bed? What about alcohol? How about caffeine? I mean, it's unbelievable the different things that I get a chance to learn and share with people. So I, I really feel very fortunate. Well, I want to get into some of what you think are the newest, most exciting discoveries about sleep. But let's start with the basics. Uh -huh. um, how many people struggle with sleep? We've, we've discovered in oh, asking oh. our audience about it that it's a majority. It's unbelievable. Um, and, and, and we have to make a small distinction here. There's a big difference between people who have a sleep disorder and what I call disordered sleep. So a sleep disorder is apnea, narcolepsy, full-on insomnia, um, periodic leg movements, things like that. If you, if you took all the numbers together, we know that between 10 and 12% of the population has sleep apnea. We know that roughly 10% of the population has chronic insomnia at any given time. Um, if you get over the age of 50, roughly 30% of people have restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movements. Narcolepsy is only about 1%. So, you know, you start adding up all these numbers and you're looking at 40 to 45% of people with a sleep disorder, not including the people who've got disordered sleep, which is just, I wake up and I feel like crap, Michael, what's going on? What, how do I improve the quality of my sleep? Honestly, I think that's the majority of folks out there. Yeah, I'm not surprised that it's an entire discipline within medicine because yeah. like you said, there are so many different factors and I imagine you have to get quite a bit of information about someone before you know how to solve their sleep problem because if it were simple, everybody would be sleeping better and we'd all take the same supplement and we'd all be fixed, right? right? So what's, what's wrong with how standard of care medicine is treating sleep disorders or disordered sleeping? How, how are they dealing with it that's different than how you see problems yep. with sleep? Well, so here's what I'll tell you is when you look at traditional Western medicine, um, it's historically about how do I assess it and is there a treatment protocol that I can, that has already been proven that I can lock and load and get, and get through on a patient? Because remember, we're in a very difficult time for healthcare these days. I mean, at best, you might get 15 minutes with your physician, um, you know, walking through the door, you list off three things, they help you with two of them, you've got a couple of more questions and boom, they're out the door. Um, and that's really an unfortunate kind of set of circumstances. Also, most physicians have not been trained in sleep medicine for more than four hours during their entire medical school career. Okay, so we're talking about four hours during four years. And most of the time, it's, it surrounds apnea, narcolepsy, and periodic limb movements. Almost nobody talks about insomnia, which happens to be my area of specialty. Um, and I think it's because it's complicated. You know, not all insomnia is created equal. I always joke around. I say there's got to be 31 flavors of insomnia, you know, like Baskin and Robbins. I mean, it's crazy. There's the I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. I wake up too early. Insomnia associated with pain, associated with diet, associated with menopause. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and so I really don't think that a lot of physicians have been trained 
in, uh, in sleep and sleep disorders, generally speaking. Now, if we drill down to the subspecialty of sleep medicine, um, most of those people are MDs, and they're not really all that interested in the psychological aspects or the emotional aspects or the nutritional aspects of how to sleep better. They're interested, quite frankly, in diagnosing sleep apnea and getting people on CPAP machines. Now look, don't get me wrong. I don't have any problem with people getting diagnosed with apnea. CPAP is a wonderful treatment modality. It's not the only one, but it's certainly one that works and works well. Um, but the majority of sleep medicine these days really surrounds 95% of it is sleep apnea. 1% might be narcolepsy and then 4% is kind of a mishmash of everything else. So we really don't have a lot of people out there who have been interested. Now, about six, eight years ago, um, a group of psychologists got together and they created their own board exam. So it's, a, it's a, um, the American Board of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. And there are about maybe 1,000 to 1,500 people who have actually taken and passed that board now. And um, those people are finally the ones that we see are very well trained, really start to understand it. But I'll also admit to you there, I have yet to meet many of them who understand the importance of the microbiome, nutrition, um, things, of, things of that nature that could be helpful as well. So we're, we're getting there, but it's definitely taking a while. Well, we could break down you know, the categories that people tend to complain that they have problems in, they have problems falling asleep, they have problems staying asleep, they have right. problems waking up and feeling like they were rested. And I see a lot of people sort of categorizing people in those three cat three sort of general buckets. And you may have something to say about that, because I know you get way deeper and more granular than yeah. that. But one of the things I think is the most interesting about your work in recent years is that you've dived into a set of chronotypes that you can quiz us on. And yes. I'd love for you to talk about those chronotypes because what it says to me is like so many other things, one size doesn't fit all. Not all right. of us really are meant to sleep the same way. And this helps explain why I tell everyone if I am ever working after 9 p.m., listen, I can barely put a sentence together after 9 p.m., but you know what? At 6 a.m., I am so sharp. I jump out of bed. I'm sharp from the minute I wake up. I, I don't even know what would happen if I drank a coffee, a cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> and, and so you have these animal chronotypes to go with it. It also reminds me, just to drip this in there a little bit, of, of how in the last 10 years we've read quite a bit about how we've really – made it difficult for our school children, especially our adolescents, because they're meant to stay up late and they're meant yep. to sleep in late. And we beat them up about it. And we say, what is the matter with my 17 year old? He won't get up for school. He sleeps until 2 PM every weekend. Oops, wait, am I going off on my own personal issues with my 17 year old? I think I might be, but anyway, um, feel free to talk about any of those issues yep. with, with regard to how individual sleep is and that that's okay. And that we can figure out our own chronotype and what we do with it in our relationship. If we have a significant other, we may, you know, sleep oh, sure. with. Talk about all your chronotype science. Absolutely. So, so first of all, thank you for recognizing the science. It's, believe it or not, this year's Nobel Prize in medicine was given to three circadian sleep researchers. So we're finally getting kind of the spotlight in terms of people having an interest in this idea of chronotypes. Now, this is a word that many people may not have ever heard of, chronotypes, but you've probably heard of the vernacular of being an early bird or being a night owl. So if I had to guess, Robin, I'm guessing that you're probably an early bird um, because, you, like you said, you, like, you spring out of bed with lots of energy, but after 9 o'clock, you are toast. Um, I turn out to be the opposite. I'm a night owl. So I'm much better. Like If you wanted to have a meeting at noon, 
I'm all, I'm all in. I'm, I'm, I'm awake. I'm alert. I'm starting to rock and roll. But you know, much earlier than that, and things eh, not working so well for me. I might be drinking some of that coffee that you would probably avoid. What's interesting is it turns out that there's not just two of these. It's not just that there's early birds and night owls, um, but the science is really interesting. There's people in the middle, and then there are people with insomnia. And my real contribution um, to the science these days has been from my book, which is called The Power of When, W-H-E-N. And it's all about this idea of identifying your chronotype and then learning when you should do something that you would be able to do it optimally or at your highest peak potential. So let me, let me break it down. Um, what I did was I changed the names from early bird and night owl to animals that actually have those characteristics of getting up early, getting up late in the middle and insomnia. So I start out with people that I call lions. And by the way, for anybody out there who wants to learn what their chronotype is, if you go to www.thepowerofwhenquiz.com, and that'll be in the show notes, um, you can do it for free. You just click on there. It takes, there's 35 questions. It takes you about a minute, minute and a half, and you'll learn very quickly what your chronotype is. So the first one we have are early birds or who I call lions. The reason I chose lions is lions are um, very early risers. Usually their first kill is before dawn. Um, and um, then they start to get kind of lazy towards the end of the middle of the day. Um, lions are my leaders. They're my COOs of a company. These are the people that manage other people very well. They may or may not do a lot of work, but they're really good at getting people to do things. They're kind of what we would consider to be a type A personality. Um, and um, they like to make a list almost every day and go from step one to step two to step three to step four, usually in some type of order that they've kind of got set out in their head. Um, here's the caveat though. Everybody says, oh, I want to be a lion. I want to wake up at you know, 5 a.m. and get all this extra work done. Socially speaking, it's not so great to be a lion um, because like we were saying before, dinner in a movie is probably out. You know, I mean, a lion might make it through dinner, but then they're exhausted by 8.30 and going to a nine o'clock movie is probably not a good idea for them. The next category are people in between early birds and night owls and I call them bears. Actually being a bear is the best. Oh, by the way, lions represent about 15% of the population. Bears, on the other hand, represent 55% of the population. So one out of two people is a bear. And to be honest with you, Robin, it's the best to be a bear. And the reason is, is society has really molded its schedule around a bear's life. This is where we get the nine to five working schedule. Um, this is where we get, um, you know, where we know people are got traffic and certain times in the morning. We know that when people are working out, all these different things run on a bear's schedule. Now, remember, only 55% of people are bears, which means 45% of people are not. <laughs> and that can be a little bit difficult for people, but bears are really my um, my doers. They're, these are the people that get stuff done. They're usually fairly outgoing, fun to be with. These are the people that are buying drinks at the bar or inviting you to their home for dinner. Um, they're, they're really a great group of people, certainly more on the extroverted side. Then we get to the night owls or who I call the wolves. Um, wolves are very nocturnal creatures and so it made sense for me to pair those two up. Uh, I am a wolf, by the way. I rarely go to bed before midnight. Um, if If one o'clock. Um, and that's just how I was built. Um, and by the way, your 17 year old teenager is a wolf uh, because I've got a 16 year old teenager who's a wolf as well. And we'll talk about that in just a second. When you look at wolves, we're very different. We actually have a tendency to be somewhat introverted. 
Um, if, if we bother to make a list at noon, because we certainly wouldn't make one early in the morning, we might go from step one to step seven to step nine to step 12. And that makes perfect sense to us, but not sense to anybody else. Wolves have a tendency to be my most creative people. So these are my actors, my authors, um, my television stars, um, my musicians, people who are really very, very creative have a tendency to be late night people. Um, however, it's not, it sounds like it might be kind of cool, but the biggest problem for wolves is 90% um, of the world thinks that we're lazy because we just don't do mornings well. As I tell people all the time, the only thing I hate more than mornings are morning people, okay? Because it's just not a lot of fun working with some of those people. They're all chipper and things like that in the morning. You're probably a morning person. You, I don't know if you and I would get along in the morning. Probably by noon, we'd be fine. Um, and also wolves um, have a tendency um, to be bigger risk takers. Um, wolves also have a significantly larger number of health issues. Um, wolves have a tendency to be overweight, have a tendency to have more sleep disorders, things of that nature. Um, wolves make up about 15% of the population. Now, I want to dive off just for a tangent on a second and talk about teenagers because here's the thing, almost all teenagers are wolves. Um, this is a biological consequence. Their internal circadian clock or rhythm is actually slated to go later. Just like me, teenagers want to go to bed at, you know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning and sleep until noon the next day. That's actually part of their biology. So for all the parents out there who are listening, I, I feel your pain because I got to get my 16-year-old and my 14-year-old up every morning and there's nothing easy about it. Um, but it's not their fault. This is their biology. By around age 18, they'll fall into one of these four categories. Some of people like me stay as a wolf while others will move into these different categories. Um, the final category, which represents about 10% of the population are my dolphins. The reason I chose dolphins is because most people don't know this, but dolphins actually sleep unihemispherically. So half of their brain is asleep while the other half is awake and looking for predators. And I thought that was kind of a good representation of my insomniacs because nobody's ever took taken in people with insomnia and put them into this, uh, into this categorization. And I think they really need to be. And the reason I think that is because all of these categories are not things that I made up. These are genetically predisposed categories. If we took a snip of your DNA and we drilled down to an area called the PER3 gene, what we would understand is that the length of that gene determines your sleep drive as well as your circadian rhythm. And those are the two factors that are so important about understanding chronotypes. But let's say you've taken my quiz and you figured out, okay, I'm a bear or a wolf or whatever. Michael, what good does that do me? Here's where it gets super duper interesting is everybody has a hormone schedule. When you wake up in the morning, your melatonin stops, your cortisol raises, and you start to go about your day. However, if your internal biological clock wakes you up at five and somebody else's internal biological clock wakes them up at seven, guess what? you're still following your normal schedules. So there's a big spread or a big difference between them. And I've discovered a way to figure out when your hormones are naturally, without any supplements, naturally able to identify when your hormones are at a particular point for you to do certain activities at their peak or at their best. Um, and and the, there's over 300 studies in my book. Um, not that I did. I culminated data literally from around the world um, but I mean, I can tell people the best time to have sex, eat a cheeseburger, run a mile, ask your boss for a raise, you name it. Well, that's interesting considering that we have a lot of us lions are in relationship with wolves 
And I think that probably takes a major toll on uh, intimate relationships, uh, long-term. I bet you have something to say about that. I do. So the number one question that I've been asked since I've written this book is what's the best time for sex? And what do I do if I'm one chronotype and my partner's another one? So let's address those straight out of the gate. So it's pretty interesting when you look at the hormone profile that somebody would need in order to have an intimate relationship. Um, You need high levels of testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone, cortisol, and adrenaline. All All five of those need to be high, and melatonin needs to be low. All right, in order to, for you to accomplish your goal. Well, here's the thing. 74% of people have sex between 10.30 and 11.30 at night. It's a great survey that was done looking at that kind of data. Well, I'll give you one guess what your hormone profile looks like at night looking at all of those hormones that I just discussed. Do you want to take a guess at it? Um, I bet that the melatonin is really high. The progesterone yep. is too low. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, really bad for sex. <laughs> it's in the opposite place. So you heard it here from Robin and I, everybody should be having sex in the morning. Um, and also, by the way, everybody actually already knew this, especially if you're a male, because one of the things we know is that most men wake up with an erection. If that is not mother nature telling you when you're supposed to use that, I'm pretty sure I don't know what is. Um, but that's where it gets kind of interesting, right? Is looking at these hormone profiles. Now, let's say that we've got somebody who's an early morning person and somebody who's a late night person. Well, what do you do in those types of situations? Believe it or not, in the book, I created a matrix where the male can put in their chronotype, the female can put in their chronotype, and it actually gives times in the early evening and times in the early morning when it might be best for sex. I also have two other charts in there for uh, uh, homosexual couples and lesbian couples because the hormone profiles are very, very different. It seems like your information should be in the hands of all these functional natural hormone replacement doctors <laughs> because they they tell us all the exact same thing. They're like, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of variability in that, you know, take your progesterone and right. your melatonin half an hour before you want to go to bed, a, a couple things like that. But it's not very adapted to this science that you've really dialed in with your chronotype typing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean... It, it feels like it's been a little bit on the fringe, if you will. And, um, you know, I was inspired. I mean, this has been a part of my training, actually, since I started practicing. I mean, I have had patients historically who've got um, delayed sleep phase or advanced sleep phase. These people are lions and wolves, but to the extreme. Um, and it's really been a part of my career for a long, long time. But you're absolutely correct, Robin. And thank you for, you know, identifying the fact that it's just not a part of mainstream medicine these days. And I think there's probably some myths out there that you could bust for us. You know, my mother slept four and a half hours her entire life, but she also will take naps, like 15, 20 minute power naps. Mm -hmm. And the woman can sleep anywhere. She'll pull over on the side of the freeway if she's driving somewhere and she's tired and boom, she's out. But then she's up in 15 minutes and that literally never sleeps more than four and a half hours. She gets up and she reads like her scriptures in the morning for like two hours before anyone else even gets up. She raised eight children on this kind of schedule. It's what her body does. It's not just that she's now 75. It's she's always doing this, but then she just has this like amazing ability to nap. I've seen her lie on a bench in a, in a huge baseball or um, basketball stadium. I've seen her do it in a college football stadium with people literally stomping on the bench that she's on and she's asleep. She's asleep. I don't even know which of the categories 
she would fall into. But I, I wonder if you could just talk about the whole idea that we have to get eight hours of sleep. Because for me personally, that created a lot of anxiety for a lot of years until I figured out that I do well if I just can complete sleep cycles without the alarm going off. And if the alarm goes off in the middle of the sleep cycle, even if I got you know eight hours of sleep, I might be tired all day. Whereas I might get four and a half hours, wake up naturally and be fine all day long. What do you have to say about that? So couple of different things. So first of all, when you, when you look through the, when you look at the idea of napping and people who don't need a lot of sleep, um, that's genetic. Um, there, there's about 1% of the population are what we call short sleepers where they can sleep six hours and feel great. There are some people that are extreme short sleepers. Again, this is all based on genetics, um, where people can sleep four and a half to five hours and be just fine. So if you kind of hit the genetic lottery, if you will, um, and, and have got that going on for you, that's awesome. Congratulations. You get a lot of stuff done. Um, it's not something that you can necessarily train your body to do. When you talk about napping, um, I, I love napping. I'm a big fan unless you have insomnia. If you are an insomnia, if you're an insomniac, rather, napping is not a good idea for you because it lowers your sleep drive or your ability to fall asleep at night. Now, one of the phenomenon that you correctly identified was the idea that if you wake up naturally um, at the end of a sleep cycle versus waking up um, from an alarm in the middle of a sleep cycle. So many people have experienced this where you nap um, and let's say um, you nap so long that when you wake up, you can never feel like you wake up, right? That is exactly what you're talking about. When you wake up in the middle of either stage three, four sleep, which is the deep physically restorative sleep or REM sleep, which is the deep mentally restorative sleep, your brain wants that sleep. And so it wants you to go back to bed. And so it's gonna continue to make you feel sleepy in order to try to get you to fall back asleep. Whereas if you woke up at the end of a sleep cycle, which is, uh, believe it or not, stage two, it's much, much easier to wake up. You feel more refreshed and you're ready to rock and roll. Okay, so not everybody has to get eight hours of sleep. Oh, absolutely not. That's a myth for sure. I mean, look, I'm the sleep doctor and I get between six and six and a half hours every night. Okay. So people need to understand. And you know, what we can do, a, I can show people a quick experiment. So most people have a socially determined wake up time, meaning got to get the kids ready for school. You got to get up for work, what have you. We know that the average sleep cycle is roughly 90 minutes long. We know that the average person has between four and five of these sleep cycles. So if you take a 90 minute sleep cycle and you multiply it times five, that's 450 minutes or again, roughly seven to seven and a half hours. If you count backwards from your wake up time, it will tell you what your bedtime should be. So if you wake up at 630, your bedtime should probably be around 11. So if you, if you run the experiment and you go to bed at 11, see what happens. I'll tell you, I ran the experiment for me and let me tell you what happened. It failed and it failed miserably and I'll explain to you why. I went to bed at 11 and instead of waking up at 6.30, which is when I wanted to, I woke up at 5.30. I tried to stay in bed and I felt like crap all day. The next day I did the same thing, went to bed at 11, woke up at 5.30. Then I said to myself, maybe my sleep cycle isn't 90 minutes long. I'm gonna go to bed an hour later and see what happens. I went to bed at midnight, I woke up at 6.30 on the nose and I have ever since. So my sleep cycles, it turns out, are approximately 78 minutes long. Now, how on earth, Michael, did you know that your sleep cycle was 78 minutes long? Well, guess what, everybody? I'm a sleep doctor. I work in a sleep laboratory. So it really wasn't too hard for me to spend the night there one night and figure out how long my cycles were. Not everybody has the opportunity to do that. 
but you know, we all do have the opportunity to track our sleep these days because there, are, there turns out that there are some pretty interesting sleep trackers out there that can actually be quite helpful. My personal favorite sleep tracker um, is something called the Sleep Score. Uh, you can go to the App Store and download it. It actually works with your iPhone. Um, I think they're coming out with an Android version soon. And um, this is something that's really cool because all you do is you point the speakers um, of the phone towards you and it can actually measure which stages of sleep you're in, your cycles, and give you some really good ideas. So understanding when to wake up or rather when to go to bed so that you can wake up naturally will absolutely put a better uh, start on your day. Interesting. Yeah, I've found out, I have found out through my own experimentation and I think I think you're suggesting that we all have to experiment and kind of come Absolutely. up with a hypothesis and, and test it that for me, an hour before midnight is worth two hours after midnight. And I'm going to wake up, yep. I'm going to wake up between five and six, no matter what I do. Yeah. I, I you, there is so much conversation right now about cannabis, um, about uh -huh. marijuana. And there's some talk out there about that, the FDA has really been holding back and pushing on keeping marijuana illegal in so many states, even though it's, you know, really well documented at this point that alcohol is way worse for us than marijuana yeah. consumption. Probably you're going to probably have some comments about how sleep I've, I've read some research on this, like what does alcohol do to your sleep? What does marijuana do to your sleep? But, you know, we're going to probably now that the FDA is coming out with a drug based on cannabis, uh, they want, they just, there's some talk about that they just wanted to be first to market. And so once that's out there, then they don't, they, they want to see all these political walls fall down and we're going to see um, a lot more use of cannabis. I mean, some influencers, some people in my space and yours are out there selling cannabis, but they're, they're running a lot of risks doing so at their, their brand being shut down and what they're saying about it and how it's distributed and lots of issues there. But uh, what, what, do you think about people who are taking cannabis before bed? It's being it's being pitched by the marketers are just going crazy. It's just a dogfight out there over cannabis and lots of claims being made and it's the the cure for everything. What do you think about cannabis for sleep and what do does your sleep uh, lab stuff tell you about that? Sure. So first of all, everybody needs to kind of get a little bit of a basic education behind cannabis, right? And so cannabis is a lot like wine in the fact that there's red wine and there's white wine, right? So there's two main types of wine. Well, the same holds true with cannabis. It turns out that there's two main types of cannabis. There's something called sativa and there's something called indigo, right? So indigo turns out to be the more relaxing, um, uh, slower, slow your, you know, yourself down type of cannabis, whereas sativa has a tendency to be more energy promoting and more uplifting. So if you're looking at cannabis for sleep, specifically for people with issues of anxiety, um, pain, um, PTSD, things of that nature, you definitely want to say on the indigo side for sure. The next question that you have to ask is, do I want something with THC or without THC? So THC is the psychoactive properties within marijuana that gives you that high. Um, is that good for sleep? It actually is good for sleep, but in a very particular ratio. So it turns out that you don't need to have a tremendous amount of THC. You just need to have enough to kind of settle you in and make you relax. The real um, thing that seems to be giving us the, the good power for the punches, as it were, is something called CBD or cannabidiol. CBD um, is now being shown out of some studies in Israel and Belgium to lower inflammation dramatically. 
And inflammation, all kinds of inflammation now, I'm not just talking about inflammation where you're sore or you've hurt yourself or something like that, but just bodily information based on diet and things of that nature um, has a major effect on sleep. And so I'm a proponent of cannabis for sleep, but I'm a proponent of um, well-documented research to look at CBD in particular for sleep. We really don't have enough information yet looking on the THC side. So as it stands right now, and by the way, CBD, which is extracted from hemp, um, which is the one of the genders of the, of the marijuana plant, um, is perfectly legal in all 50 states. However, if there's any THC in it, this psychoactive portion, that's where things can get a little wonky. Um, so as it stands right now, I can tell you that the data is pretty clear that CBD can and should be quite helpful for sleep. Uh, I've written a couple of blogs about this topic in particular, so if people want to check that out, they can go to my website, which is uh, thesleepdoctor.com, uh, and then under my blogs, just type in CBD, and you'll see two or three blogs where I've written extensively um, about CBD in particular. But you got to be careful, because you can't just kind of walk into a dispensary and say, hey, I need the sleep weed, right? It doesn't really work that way just yet. It's kind of a little bit of the Wild West. You really want to work with somebody who knows and understands it. So maybe the doctor who may have given you your medical marijuana card, or if you're in a state where it's recreationally legal, um, see if you can find um, a dispensary where they're giving educational lectures, or sometimes they have almost a concierge who can help walk you through that. Believe it or not, they're now actually making um, disposable cartridges specifically designed just for sleep. So it has the ratio of CBD to THC in it. Um, I've never tested any of those, so I can't tell you how well or not well those work um, personally, but I can tell you that I've had several patients use them and they find them to be highly effective. Now, some people drink alcohol because it helps them fall asleep, but then what happens? So there's a really big difference between going to sleep and passing out, right? And so one of the things we have to realize is alcohol is probably one of the most toxic substances there is. Um, really, there's almost no use for it in your body, yet it's actually the oldest elixir there is as well. Um, alcohol, while it makes you feel sleepy, the, the ETOH, the alcohol, the ethyl alcohol itself, actually prevents your body from getting into deep restorative, physically restorative sleep, or what we call stage three and four sleep. At drinking alcohol right before bed can definitely make you feel sleepy, but you do not I repeat, you do not get the physical restoration that you're looking for. Believe it or not, Robin, half of the reason we have a hangover is from lack of deep sleep. The other half is due to dehydration, um, which is another major factor because alcohol is a diuretic, makes you pee. So all of a sudden you, you become dehydrated very, very quickly. So one of my chief recommendations has always been, I don't have a problem if you want to have a couple of glasses of wine at dinner um, because I enjoy wine as well. But you really want to keep it to below three glasses, and you want to stop approximately three hours before lights out. It takes the average human body approximately one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage, and that's where I came up with those numbers. Yeah, it seems like most people who drink alcohol will go to sleep easily and quickly, even if that's not their normal tendency. But then they, just like clockwork, wake up at 3, 4 a.m., and then they're tired the whole next day. What's that about? So that is exactly what we're talking about is this complete lack of um, stage three, four sleep. And that's really where the problem lies. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the drugs for sleep and we don't have to go through them all. But, you know, sure. I've read so many things about 
how massively higher your cancer risk is if you use oh, yeah. Ambien. And Ambien, Ambien is, you know, people love it because you take it and then you wake it up works. and you don't, yeah, well, you don't feel, you don't feel tired when you wake up from it in the morning. But you now yeah. I, I have a couple of friends who just would take Ambien and then for some reason I would stay awake and wander around and do weird things and send very weird texts to people. And it's become yes. kind of an epidemic that, of. Yeah, that can happen as well. So, so here's the problem is pharmaceutically induced sleep is not the same as natural sleep. There's, there's no argument by anybody about that. However, there are some people out there who have such significant issues, whether it's a mental health issue like PTSD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, you name it, that will require that supplementation isn't going to work. Um, natural sleep is never going to get them there. No matter how many cognitive behavioral therapy sessions we go through, there are just some people that need a drug to sleep. And you know what? That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want people out there to think all sleep drugs are bad because they're not. Used by prescription from your doctor in the way that you should be using it, they can actually be very effective. Here's where the problem comes in, is if you don't fall into that category, but your doctor doesn't really know what to do, they just write you a script for Ambien. And let me tell you something, Ambien is a powerful, powerful medication. It works and it works well. Um, it barely interacts with anything else except for alcohol. Um, one of the biggest issues is if somebody had a glass or two of wine at dinner and then they take an Ambien even a couple of hours later, it can have a significant um, interaction effect there and it can make you do some really weird stuff. Um, by the way, I oftentimes, if I'm in clinic and somebody comes to me and they say, I've gotten a prescription from my doctor for Ambien, um, you know, but I'm a little bit concerned about using it, what should I do? Number one, if you're not getting enough information from your doctor about your medication and you're uncomfortable using it, call your doctor, get more information. Come on over to my website. Whatever you need to do to get more educated on something you're about to ingest is going to be important. So that's fact number one. Fact number two, never, ever, ever drink alcohol when taking a sleeping pill. Number one, it, from a common sense perspective, it, I, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I need to say this. It's just a bad idea. Um, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to add a respiratory depressant like alcohol to another respiratory depressant like a sleeping pill because that's how you end up having a really big problem on your hand. The other thing to remember is if you are going to be taking it for the first time, don't take it alone. Have a bed partner or a friend come spend the night so that somebody can kind of keep an eye on you to make sure that you don't have some kind of weird reaction like walking around and texting and shopping on QVC or whatever it is that you, you might have a tendency to do. The final thing I ask people to do is if you're going to try a sleep medication, take it and turn out the light, okay? You don't need to take it and then go wash your face, brush your teeth, get into your pajamas, okay? Ambien affects people usually within 15 minutes. Take it while you're lying in bed, turn out the light, turn off the television, and just relax and let the medication do what it's supposed to do. Most people do not do that. They take it while they're right before they brush their teeth because they keep their pill bottle next to their sink. Keep your pill bottle next to your, uh, next to your bed um, and that's when you should take it. A lot of people misuse the medication um, and I'm not saying that it doesn't have those side effects for some people because it does even if you use it correctly. But generally speaking, we can usually narrow it down to some sort of a misuse or abuse. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that long before I knew 
the side effects of Ambien and, and possibly what it's actually doing, which isn't necessarily putting me to sleep. I right. had it next to my bed and decided a long time ago, just literally don't fill, fill the prescription. Don't even have it on hand. Just go a half a night or a whole night without sleep after something stressful happens at night or whatever has to happen rather than use Ambien. Because the way I would use it is if I wake up at 3 a.m. and I start stewing it about something, then I start stewing about the fact that I'm going to be tired all day and that I really shouldn't be awake at 3 a.m. And then when you're stressed right. out, of course, you can't go back to sleep. I would take it because for whatever reason, a half of a five milligram Ambien would would knock me out for one sleep cycle. And I wake up and I can go work out hard. I can do anything. But right. it didn't it didn't put me to sleep and I slept all day like happens for a lot of people. It just gave me a good sleep cycle. But I have read, and I'd like to check this out with you, I've read that Ambien doesn't actually put you to sleep. It puts you in a trance. So there's there's different so it really depends upon your definition of sleep, right? And so when if we look at somebody who's taking Ambien, they actually do go into official sleep stages. So literally by definition, we have to say that people are by definition asleep. However, if you wake somebody up who's just taken an Ambien and fallen asleep and you ask them were they asleep, nine times out of 10, they'll say no. So there's a disconnect there. Um, and, and also the other thing that a lot of people don't know is after about 30 to 60 days, Ambien becomes less and less effective. And in some cases becomes completely ineffective. So we've got literally millions and millions and millions of people out there who take this drug every single night. And in many cases, it actually has almost zero effect because they've been taking it for so long. Ambien's, when you look at prescription sleep aids, again, not for people who've got major medical issues or mental health issues, but for just the general public, a sleeping pill is good to break the cycle of insomnia for 30, 60, 90 days. Once you kind of go past that, it's really not an effective use of the medication. And so in our clinic, I'm always telling people about, look, we need to look at ideas for natural supplementation, look at real deficiencies that your body has, fulfill those deficiencies, then see if you actually would need a sleep aid like an Ambien or Lunesta or Sonata or one of those. But generally speaking, my job, 95% of the patients that show up in my office for insomnia, they want to get off the drug and they just feel like they can't because there's a real psychological component to this and uh, people get scared to come off their Ambien. Yeah, that's why I had to just literally not have the prescription in my house because if I knew it was in my nightstand next to my bed, I would lie there at 3 a.m. and be like, don't take it, yeah. don't take it, you, you, you know, we're trying to not take this more than once a month. And, and so I just like remove, remove the brain damage of that whole internal debate. Right. And, but I, I found it only worked for me maybe three nights in a row. If I was processing some really stressful situation in my life, that's, that's always been when I have sleep troubles is when something is very stressful. And for some reason, my psyche doesn't seem to get clear on the fact that it doesn't do its best work at 3am, but it, it, you know, <laughs> it just tries to. So, so good stuff on Ambien. Thank you for the feedback. There's I think it's fascinating to learn what uh, sleep labs learn that that really busts some of the myths. And I've read that people, and this may be comforting to people, that people uh, will say how much sleep they got after at the end of a night, and they almost always underreport it when it's tested in a sleep lab. Accurate That's or not? Correct. Yeah, that is correct. Um, it's pretty amazing, um, to be honest with you. It's uh, it's just. It's one of those things that you kind of sit there and you say to yourself, wow, that's, that's incredible that it's, it's really not as effective as I think it's going to be. Um, but many, many people misreport um, how much sleep they get, especially while taking these medications. 
Yeah, so that may be helpful to us that a lot of times we wake up and we have anxiety about, oh my gosh, I didn't get enough sleep. And um, from those who track this, like you, the professionals in the sleep labs, we learn that we usually got more sleep than we think we did, which is probably why when someone says, I'm going to go take a nap, and then an hour later when they get up, you say, did you sleep? They'll say, I don't really know, right? Right. <laughs> Seems like if you don't know, you probably did. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, do you have anything to say about all the endocrine disruptors in our environment? We're all being bombarded with all these chemicals for the first time in the history of humans, uh, literally 80,000 of them approved for use in our air, food, water, etc. Do you think that these play a role in why so many of us have sleep problems? And if so, what, what do we do about that? So that's a big question um, because there's a lot of different things that are out there. Um, here's what I would tell you is at First of all, we don't know the answer. Um, science hasn't gotten there. One of the things that people don't realize is that the very first sleep laboratory was actually in 1946. So when we look at sleep medicine, we're at its infancy in terms of just understanding the basics in terms of what are the sleep disorders and what should we do about them, much less what are all the toxins that are flying and floating around our worlds, whether it's um, EMFs from um, you know, Wi-Fi to um, some of the sweeteners in our food, to sugar. To, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? I mean, you've identified that in, in, in many of your, of your teachings. So we really don't know about all of them. There are a couple that, we, that seem to make some sense. So let, one of them I, I mentioned just briefly was EMFs. There's a whole host of people out there who are EMF sensitive. Um, and, you know, you could have blown me over with a feather um, because I had, you know, patients tell me, I swear to you, there's something, but every time I walk, I, I walk into my bedroom, there's a problem. And so I, but I can sleep anywhere else in the house. And so I actually went to their house and I was like, what could it be? And it turned out that their router for their internet, for some reason was in their bedroom. And I couldn't understand why. And so I asked and they said, there's something about the house structure and it helps the, the Wi-Fi go all over the house. And I was like, turn off your router. I'm just curious to see what happens. They've never slept better and they've kept their router off ever since. So while I can't necessarily say that there's an assessment tool out there that can let me know if somebody's EMF sensitive, if you have historically had EMF sensitivity issues, we can, we can tell just by case study that it seems as though that can be affecting sleep. Um, other things that I've noticed like as an example, and this is a little bit different than um, a hormone example uh, per se in terms of that this is a time of life hormone example, but menopause. We know that women have tremendous sleep issues when it comes to um, uh, peri and post menopause and postmenopausal um, times in their lives. We know that their sleep is dramatically affected by that. As a matter of fact, they did like a five-part blog series just on menopause and sleep. So that could be something that could be important for people um, as well. But we, we're definitely learning more. But I, I will honestly tell you that the research is in its infancy as it stands right now. Yeah, I think it's really cutting edge of you to be aware that chaotic frequencies in our environment are real. They do impact people. I feel like the wellness authors out there that I hang out with, like you and um, influencers, are really tuned into the the power of, of EMF in our environment. But the average person out there is not. Right. So we have a lot of work to do there, but I do want to mention a couple of quick things since this is a topic that we've covered a lot in the last couple of years at Green Smoothie mm -hmm. Girl. We talk a lot about EMF. And one of them is that when I installed Green Wave filters in 
the hot spots in my bedroom. Um, I have never slept better than the two nights oh, after that. Yeah, I installed them so that, you know, bleeding electricity that we were getting really excessive readings from. I put the green wave filters in. I will put a link to the green wave filters. You could buy buy them in bulk for um, especially where yeah. you sleep and where you work in your house, where you spend most of the time in your house. But that helped a lot. Not super expensive. Um, I the the two nights after I installed them, and then I went and put a sound bar in my room with some with some speakers, and that kind of set me back. And I need to figure that out again. But but after I installed them, I slept through the night, full eight hours of sleep, uh, two nights in a row for the first time in probably ten years. And so that was um, wow. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. Another thing I want to mention is that um, my readers may know that I'm about to move to Park City, Utah, after spending 33 years down here in Utah County. I'm going going to Park City for the clean air. My youngest child just graduated high school. I'm sort of an empty nester, although my kids keep coming home. But I decided against the EMF blocking paint, which I've been looking into, uh, because it was going to be a big hassle. I'd do EMF blocking paint, and then I had to do another coat of non-toxic paint over that. And, and then I learned from several experts that it also keeps EMF in, doesn't let, the, doesn't let, it, let it leave. Plus, there's the windows issue. So I chose a canopy over my bed. I didn't want it to look ugly or have to fight my way out of it to get out of my bed. And so I found one, unfortunately it's like $1,500 and there's a thing that you put under your bed for, for the EMF that comes up from the floor below you or whatever. And then the canopy, that is what I'm going to be going with after my extensive research to deal with the EMF issue. Cause I'm serious about protecting my sleep. I don't want to lie in bed and not sleep. That's a big waste of time. Right. So, um, so thank you for talking about those several additional things that might affect our sleep. I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, I know that you've made some connections between this emerging science that I think like other things that you've touched on is such new emerging science that we don't come anywhere close to knowing everything there is to know yet. But the microbiome that, you know, the human microbiome project, I think kicked off something like 20 years ago and it started to really come out what we learn about our second brain and the the huge microbiome in our 35 feet of GI tract. It's only starting right. to come out in the last 10 years, but what does that have to do with our sleep? So it turns out that the microbiome functions on its own circadian rhythm. Um, and that circadian rhythm follows the sleep cycle. And so when your sleep cycle is off, it makes your biorhythms off, which makes your microbiome off. Um, and if your microbiome is off, it can actually affect your sleep cycles. So there's a really interesting two-way street. This data is hot off the press. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, within the last six, eight months that we're learning more and more about how um, the microbiome affects sleep. But if, if you're one of those people who's starting to learn more about the microbiome, starting to become more proactive by looking at prebiotics and probiotics and kind of trying to get your gut in line, which by the way, I highly recommend then what you will discover is, is as you do that, your sleep gets significantly better, um, literally overnight. Uh, so again, bleeding edge science here, but we know that your microbiome does function on a circadian rhythm. There are highs and lows um, during times of heightened ac- bacterial activity and lowered by, uh, bacterial activity. Um, and um, your gut is, is, like you said, it's your second brain. So it would make perfect sense to me that your second brain could also influence your sleep, which of course it does. So again, new, new stuff, new, new science going on. Um, but if you, if you do decide to get a healthier microbiome, I can almost guarantee you that you'll have healthier sleep. 
Okay, and this is just taking it one layer deeper, and yep. this is super, super ninja stuff here. I don't know if you'll have an answer, but I just got home two days ago from uh, Switzerland, where I'd been for three weeks, and my boyfriend told me as I was coming home, because I said, oh my gosh, I always have really rough jet lag coming home from Milan, because I fly, mm-hmm. fly to Milan and back every single year for, like I think, eight years now. And I'm like, well, I'm not looking forward to the adjustment when I get back. And he said, well, I read that based on you know, emerging microbiome research that if you take probiotics that you'll have a lot less jet lag. Do you know anything about this? I was like, why do you know this? I should know this. Why, what, you're not a wellness influencer. What is this? Right. So um, we do know that air travel um, and bad oxygen both affect the microbiome pretty significantly, right? So by, because remember it's timing issue. And so it's a circadian issue. And so basically your stomach is in Milan and you're in, you know, Utah, right? And so that takes time for it to catch up. So, so by loading up on some probiotics um, or prebiotics ahead of schedule, it makes sense to me that it could be helpful. I've never seen any data to support that, but it definitely makes sense to me. But for people out there who are interested in dealing with jet lag, I actually have a new app out that people can download. Um, from the app store, or actually you can just go to, um, it's called Time Shifter. So if you go to timeshifter.com forward slash the sleep doctor, then you can download the app. You get your first um, two round trips for free and it can be anywhere in the world. And it's really cool app. It tells you when to get light exposure, when to use melatonin, uh, when to use caffeine, when to nap. And um, we've been able to reduce jet lag dramatically. We've been using it for about three years now with the astronauts uh, in the NASA space station because they actually have a new day every 90 minutes or so. That space station goes whipping around the moon pretty quick. Um, And so um, that's been interesting. We've also been using it with Formula One race car drivers um, because they've they've traveled all over the world and they have to be alert, you know, to the millisecond. Um, And we've had great success with them as well. So for folks out there who are having issues with jet lag, Go to timeshifter.com forward slash the sleep doctor, and uh, you should be able to download it for free and check it out. What a cool tip. You know, you've, you've shared so many great bits of information and tips about sleep, and I know that people will learn a lot about how to get better sleep and what factors are affecting it. I'm going to ask you two more questions as we wrap up. What's cutting edge? What are you learning that's coming out of the sleep labs that people should know? So I would say one of the biggest things lately that I've been working with people on is understanding more about supplements and supplementation and specifically um, body deficiencies and how those can have an effect on sleep. Um, The biggest thing I've recently been learning a lot about is magnesium. Um, It turns out that almost all of us are magnesium deficient. Our bodies don't actually produce magnesium. um, And even if we ate a bushel of kale a day, which by the way, nobody should do, um, our bodies wouldn't absorb it. Uh, because the soil that kale is grown in these days has been overused and doesn't have the, it isn't mineral rich and isn't giving us the magnesium that our body needs. And our body functions, I mean, there's like over 300 different things our body does that require magnesium. So one of the things I tell people all the time is you need to look forward and consider magnesium supplementation. Now, I personally have a cardiac issue, and so I have to take a, a very high dose of magnesium every morning because we want the magnesium in my cardiac tissue to be very reactive. Um, But most people don't require that much magnesium. About 200, 250 milligrams um, at night before bed can actually be very, very helpful. 
Also, melatonin is something that a lot of people ask me questions about. And remember, melatonin is a hormone. Um, most people don't need melatonin. Most people have plenty of melatonin in their system. However, for jet lag, it can be very helpful. But also, once you reach age 50, 55, and I turned 50 this year, um, I, I can tell you that you start to understand that melatonin uh, internally starts to slow down, the production rather. So having a melatonin supplement might not be the worst idea, um, but you need to be careful of the dosage. It should be between a half and one and a half milligrams. Most dosages out there is three, five, and 10 milligrams. That's completely unnecessary and wasteful. And quite frankly, we don't, we don't know what the effects could be long-term. Um, and as well as it's not FDA regulated. So you really have to find good melatonin uh, in order to be able to take it safely and effectively. Um, but those two areas, melatonin research and magnesium research, have been two things that I've been really keying in on um, because I, I'll be launching my own supplement within the next three to five weeks. And um, those are things that I've decided to put into it, but in very specific amounts and in very certain instances. I'm glad you brought up melatonin because if we hadn't, we would have left out something really important because probably the most well-known sleep supplement. And I'm glad yeah. you said half to one and a half milligrams is the right amount. I I do a sleep webinar every year when I get a really great deal from my favorite bed manufacturer, as you know, IntelliBed. And, and I yep. tell people, you know, I, what I see happening, and it's changed in the last 10 years, is that as more and more people want to try melatonin and they understand how the pineal gland is affected by these weird, uh, unnatural things that we do late at night with blue light and our device addiction, people, I, I see the the marketers out there putting higher and higher levels of melatonin in their supplements, sometimes five milligrams. And I think I've even seen 10 milligrams, which is ridiculous, like you said. And, you know, I don't know what long-term, you know, effect that may have on our pineal gland being able to produce it if we're oversupplying. I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows that, but um, I feel like the, the manufacturers are doing it because so many people who know very little about melatonin and our need for it, think, well, if melatonin is good, more is better. And so of course they're going to provide us the, provide us the five milligrams because people see it and be like, well, so this one isn't any more expensive. More is better. Right. So I'm glad you said that. Um, I want to ask you a quick question about magnesium because I've added that to my sometimes, uh, nighttime supplement regimen, but there are several different types of magnesium and some are better for sleeping than others. You talk in magnesium citrate or what, what, what compound? So that's the problem is some people do better with chelated, some people do better with citrate, some people do better with oxate. So you have to try a couple of them. Me personally, I take citrate. Um, I can tell you the brand too that I use. I happen to have a bottle of it sitting here in my office. It is called Mag SRT. Um, and, it, and this one is different because it combines vitamin B with magnesium, um, which uh, actually works out really well for me. Um, and this type of magnesium is called dimagnesium malate, M-A-L-A-T-E, and it's 500 milligrams. So um, that, you know, there's, again, there's a lot of different magnesium out there. You, ha you might have to try a little bit to understand. And the first thing you probably want to do is get your magnesium levels checked. Um, you know, most people don't even, like, you know, that's not normal blood work that goes on at your doctor. Maybe at your functional medicine doctor it is, but not at your regular doctor. So certainly something that people should probably think about. Yeah, good to know. I was taking a, a broad spectrum B complex at bedtime. I did it for several 
nights and I kept waking up in the morning and I was just like sweating, like night sweats. And I don't usually have that. And I was like, what on earth is going on? And finally I realized, uh uh-oh, niacin, niacin's in there. I'm having uh, a big flush. And so don't, don't take a a entire B complex at night. Bad idea. Let's go to last question. What are a few things that anyone can do who's having a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep or getting restful sleep that we haven't covered? So here's what I'll tell you is I've got a super easy five-step plan that everybody can use tonight that can be helpful for sleep. All right. So step one is to stick to one wake up schedule. And what do I mean by that? If you wake up at 6.30 during the week, do yourself a favor and wake up at 6.30 on the weekends. The longer you sleep in, the more likely your, your whole time clock is to shift. And that's what we call social jet lag. So step one is have one wake up time. You can vary your bedtime if you want to. Um, I wouldn't. I like to keep things very consistent. And that actually allows me to actually re- need less sleep overall. Step number two has to do with caffeine. I don't have a problem if you drink a cup of coffee every day, even two, but you want to stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Most people don't realize it, but caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours. And so by stopping at two, at least half of it is out of your system by 10, and that will allow you to fall asleep much easier. Um, I know a lot of people out there might say, oh, I can drink a cup of coffee and go right to bed. You might be able to, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that caffeine is a stimulant. Um, and it prevents you from getting into the deeper stages of sleep. So while you may fall asleep, you may not get the quality of sleep that you're looking for. So stopping by 2 p.m. is probably a good idea. Step number three has to do with alcohol. Um, and that's where we, we were talking earlier. You want to stop drinking alcohol approximately three hours before lights out. This gives your body time to digest those two or three drinks. And again, you'll be able to fall asleep instead of passing out. Uh, step number four has to do with exercise. Uh, the single biggest way to improve the quality of your sleep is with daily exercise. I'm not talking about running a marathon, okay? You can go out for 20 minutes and walk the dog or go to the mall or wherever you wanna do and just get a little bit of exercise in will definitely be helpful. But you may wanna not exercise within four hours of bedtime because a lot some people get a little revved up from exercising can make it a little bit more difficult to fall asleep. And then finally, step number five is to get 15 minutes of sunlight every morning. You know, for so long, people have been like, oh, you can't get out in the sun. You're going to get skin cancer. Look, let me tell you something. I'm not saying go out and roast yourself out there for three hours every morning. I'm saying 15 minutes of direct sunlight. Number one, you get your vitamin D production. But number two, um, it resets your circadian rhythm each morning. So in summary, step one is choose one wake up time and stick to it. Step two is stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Step three is to stop alcohol three hours before bed. Step four is to stop exercise four hours before bed. And step five is to get 15 minutes of sunlight every day. Wow, that was absolutely fantastic. So I really appreciate how much really actionable help you've given us here. Where can people find you? Tell, tell your quiz URL again and where they can sure. find you and, you and your book, of course. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So if people want to know what their chronotype is, go to the, like T-H-E, power of when w-h-e-n quiz.com and you can learn what your chronotype is um, if you want to learn more about the book it's just at the power of when but my website is the sleep thank you so much for this great content and for doing the great work that you're doing in in the world dr michael bruce well thank you robin you're sweet to say that and you know it's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with people who have a true value for sleep 
and value health and who are interested in learning the truth. And I know that's what you are, that's what you've always been about, and I know your audience really appreciates it. So thank you, it's been an honor.